Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. The Agora Podcast Network. Agora is a marketplace of the mind, where intelligent, independent podcasts meet curious and discerning listeners. Our network of shows includes... American Biography. The Bohemian Podcast. How Jamaica Conquered the World. The History of the Papacy. The History of England. The History of Alchemy Podcast. Mid-Atlantic. When Diplomacy Fails. 1001 Conversations. History of Anglo-Saxon England. The Secret Cabinet from Germany. Ten American Presidents. The History of Germany podcast. The Agora Podcast Network.com. Listen to Agora today. Now, before I start the show, I'd just like to remind you that, of course, Roundtable Talk is part of the Agora Podcast Network. And each month we like to feature and promote one of our own. This month is the excellent... Heather Tysko and her Renaissance English History podcast. I recommend you go over and listen to it today because Heather is not only an engaging podcaster, but a podcast is rather good also. So it's the Renaissance English History podcast to find out all the things that you didn't know about the Tudor period in English history. You can find Heather's podcast on iTunes, Acast or a good podcatcher of your choice. We're going to build the wall. We have no choice. We have no choice. Build that wall. 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 Welcome to Roundtable Talk with me, Roy Phil Brown. This week we look at Trump the Good, a force for restructuring the right of American politics. To look at how 2016 could reshape the US political map going forward, I'm joined by Sam Tenenhouse. Sam, as you may know, was the assistant editor of the New York Times and a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. Also, um, he used to do a rather good podcast at the New York Times Book Review. His biography of Whitaker Chambers won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize and was the finalist for the National Book Award for Nonfiction. Hello, Sam. How are you? Great to be with you, Royfield. I'm good. In these um, strange times. These times are very strange. What does the rise of Donald Trump tell us about politics in 2016 in America and maybe throughout the West? Well, throughout the West is a big question, but you know, it's interesting you bring up other countries because I think everyone on in the United States or many people and also in England got a real jolt after Brexit 
When Trump was there and he did the usual silly things he does, there he is on his golf course inspecting the greens and all the rest. But for that moment, Trump looked different. Um, and I wrote a story, an essay, some of your listeners may be aware of, uh, maybe you saw it in the Sunday Review of the New York Times, which is kind of their big opinion section, that tried to make the case that Trump, whatever his many faults, and we know what most of them are, maybe there's some new ones to be uncovered as yet, is actually good for the Republican Party in the United States. That was the argument I made, because the party itself had gotten so out of touch with voters and had become so ideologically bankrupt, so much about slogans and the recitations of abstract principles that it was not connecting with actual voters. And I think something like this, I pretend to be no expert, happened with David Cameron and, and the Tories, the conservatives in England. And the vote came up and guess what? People were ready to leave, or majority were. And as we knew, the polls were showing that, but no one still could accept it. That's what happened with Donald Trump. From the time he announced his candidacy, he was leading most of the others. He was winning primary after caucus, you know, our little pre-elections mm -hmm. in various states. And people couldn't believe it would really happen. And I think it's because our structures, our familiar structures in this country, it's the party system. And I think to some extent in yours, too, have lost their authority. And so when an interloper or outsider comes in who seems to speak more directly to people's concerns in an unscripted way, he, in this case, he can have great success. So explain exactly the the fault lines that Trump's candidacy has exposed in the Republican Party. What exactly has his run, um, you know, showed us that the Republican electorate actually is in 2016? Great question. Here's this, I think, the clearest way to look at it. For a long time, and it still goes on, when we talk about politics here in America, I don't know if it goes on in England, we speak of ideological divisions between left and right, conservatives versus liberals. Now, we apply those terms a little differently, as we all know, between Democrats and Republicans. In fact, the biggest political distinction in the United States, and I have a feeling in England too, is actually between the haves and the have-nots, right? What here we call the 1% and the 99%. There's a very interesting libertarian thinker in the United States named Charles Murray, who's quite controversial, controversial, wrote a book published a few years ago called Coming Apart. And he said in it many provocative things. And one is that the most important identifier for a person in America is not race. It's not party affiliation. It's not ideological predisposition. It's the zip code, the postal zone. The person lives in because if, they, if you live in a certain part of the country, you get a lot of the benefits or you seem to be enjoying them. And if you live elsewhere, you don't. And at that and a good example would be the Brexit vote again. Where did the remain votes come from? Well, we know a lot of it was from the city, from the financial sectors of the culture. Similar thing is happening here in the United States. The Republican Party for many years now going back to 
the Clinton years, which were also for Republicans, the Newt Gingrich years, when he was the Speaker of the House, the, our lead parliamentarian, as it were, right through the Obama years, been about the power of the free market, of low taxation, and the smallest possible government. And that argument came at a time when some 9 million people lost their jobs through the Great Recession. And the Republicans spoke as if the problem were the government itself and not a failing economy. So they obstructed Obama, everything he tried to do. They had no interest in any kind of social welfare policy. Remember, here we are, a quite wealthy liberal democracy that even now does not truly have a universal health care system, uh, which many conservatives view as an infringement on liberty. Well, that's fine to say when you've got the money to pay for your own health insurance. This kind of disconnect really dominated Republican politics, Republican ideology, all through the Obama years. And what Trump did was to barge into it almost ignorant, it seemed, of all these debates and instead would say things like, well, they've got that system up there in Canada that seems to work, which is like espousing Satanism to an evangelical. Or he'd <laughs> say, well, you know, we're going to look after everybody. We don't want people starving in the streets. And all this was received as heresy by the right who didn't understand that it was connecting with that, that base of voters. So he exposed the divide between the top layer, right, the, the ideologues, the pundits, the op-ed writers, the authors, the ones who go on the television programs and are very well paid for it, and all the voters below. That's what Trump did. And it's opened up the party and our process in a very interesting way. Now, there's a lot more to say about him, but I think that gets to the question you're asking. So why has the Republican Party in 2016 ended up in, in this fashion? Why is it that the whether it is your Marco Rubio's or your Senator Ted Cruz's, why is it that they're ideologues as opposed to actually um, connecting with the problems of, uh, let's say, real Americans who are the 99 percent? Well, that is another really great question with many layers. So I'll just get to a couple of them and preface them by saying that uh, I'm not ideological really at all myself, I'm kind of a centrist type. But for a, a long time, I've written about conservatism in America. That's my subject because it's so interesting and rich, fascinating and important. And um, so that's uh, my preamble. And so my interpretation would be that the conservative movement and the Republican Party aren't, were not identical at the beginning of the modern era, which we'll say began after the Second World War, okay. when America merges as great superpower. There were liberals and conservatives in both parties. Party, the two parties were a two-party system and have been for many years. Uh, were really more regional and, and sectionally uh, divided. There were Republicans in the North who were quite liberal on issues like civil rights. Um, there were Democrats in the South who were segregationists and, and actually committed to the ideals of the old Confederacy, you know, in the plantation era. So the parties were divided and scrambled. And a conservative movement emerged 
to try to organize and regularize conservatism in America. Conservatives felt they were losing. They lost because of the New Deal. Uh, conservatives in America had actually opposed intervention in the Second World War prior to Pearl Harbor, even as Franklin Roosevelt was guiding the country slowly, carefully toward intervention. So it was a backlog of resentment and frustration and disagreement. And they were looking for a way to build a movement so they could reassert their values. And the Republican Party was the best vehicle for it because the New Deal and the Second World War had been led by Democrats. So the Republican Party became a kind of vehicle for conservatism in the modern era, which is something we're not really used to here. You know, we're not great readers of Gramsci and know about all the different kinds of parties and sects and hegemonies and all the rest. We don't really do that here. We have a kind of centrist politics. Most people don't think of themselves as ideological. This might surprise you or your listeners. Many people who are voting for Democrats, who are going to vote for Hillary Clinton, will identify themselves as conservative. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, I believe in the family. You know, I don't like all this crazy stuff going on there with sex and drugs, but I think Hillary's a good person and she'll be a good president. So our temperament and ideology kind of separate out. The conservative movement wanted to consolidate all of that, and they did it extremely well for a period of about 25 years, from the 1950s to the 1970s. And they built up some very brilliant ideas and thinkers. I'm writing about one of them, William F. Buckley Jr., who was a great leader of, of modern conservatism. And they created think tanks and wrote cool, interesting books people still read. And they created a movement. Their politics became a movement, which is actually not so commonplace in mainstream American politics. We have movements outside politics, environmentalism, civil rights, feminism, you name it, rock and roll and sex, right? But movement politics was kind of a new addition that came out of the American right. And as it got more and more powerful, it also became more and more insular. It became a, its own establishment what a writer, Sidney Blumenthal, calls that counter-establishment. It created its parallel universe. And that peaked in the years, uh, we still hear, peaked in the years of George W. Bush um, and then Obama with Fox News, with um, uh, Rush Limbaugh and Glenn Beck, these radio and TV personalities. And they created a kind of echo chamber of extremism. And that became the new ideology of the right. And Trump is very good at drawing on the emotional content of those appeals. But he stands outside the ideological fault lines they've created. So they don't know what to do with him. So how much is Trump actually plugged into the historical rich seam of nativist kind of politics within the U.S.? How much is he just an opportunist? An opportunist and how much is he a fool? Well, <laughs> your questions are really, really good. I'd say he is. He's some of, of all those things. When, you know, it's how, uh, you probably know this, that uh, uh, when you're in a foreign country, you're always defending, right, the place you come from. Absolutely. And when you're home, you're right, you're always defending what uh, foreigners do. I find myself doing this with Trump. When people say to me, I'm working on a couple of uh, articles now for different uh, uh, publications here. And the assumption that uh, a number of my editors have is, well, Trump is not 
part of anything. There, there, there's no intellectual roots. There's no ideological roots. He, he is sui generis. He's just an entertainer and showman who comes from nowhere. And then I said, well, that's not actually true. That um, Trump's policies, I wrote about this in Prospect, a magazine uh, I've been writing a lot for in England that some mm. of you readers may know, that, that Trump's foreign policy, the the isolationism or non-interventionism, the, the very strong pro-American nationalism, what he calls America first, and the distrust of allies, the, uh, favoring tariffs. There's a long tradition of this in America. Now, it's an old tradition that really goes back to the end of the 19th century and then was revived a little bit after the First World War. But it's there. And his connection to that feels quite authentic and natural to me. So that's number one. On the other hand, he is not someone who walks around, as many American conservatives now do, with a miniature version of the Constitution in his pocket that he pulls out and recites. He doesn't um, He doesn't the way Ted Cruz can. Cruz can apparently recite most of the Constitution through a series of mnemonics that he's memorized. He knows all of these things. Ted Cruz would make a great leader of the Federalist Society, the conservative judicial group in the United States. But but voters just have no use for him, and they're right. So Trump, in that sense, is rooted in an older politics of an older nationalist politics, which also does include a racial component, it appears. I think that's the real question with Trump. Does he really like the company of anti-black and anti-Semitic and misogynist people? Does he, company in the sense of drawing on their their postings and Twitter and such, does he really believe in all of that or, or share some of it? Or is he just soaking it all in and repeating it himself? We don't know. So I think that's a real, that's Trump the fool who may be the dangerous fool. I think we don't really know. That's what happens with these wild cards, you know. I do think it's a mistake just to see him as some kind of fascist, you know. He's not building a, a movement. He's not surrounded with jackbooted, uh, you know, phalanx of phalanx of military, you know, or uh, paramilitary types. He doesn't really do that. He's more of a showman and showboat. Um, but he does have an extraordinary command of media. Um, and that's the other component with Trump easily overlooked. The best prior to him and the contrast between the two shows you how media have evolved or devolved is Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was really good at media, came out of Hollywood, was a much better and more successful movie actor than people realized. Liberals like to make fun of him. But the great Gore Vidal said Reagan was actually a really good movie actor. Well, he came out of the Hollywood where you memorized your script in several days and you could hit your mark and repeat the line exactly right every single time. Trump comes out, as we know, of the entertainment reality television, which is kind of orchestrated and structured, but has the appearance of being spontaneous. And Trump is good at working those interstices between the truly spontaneous off-the-cuff statement and the insult that's been kicking around in his head for a while. And he's really good at that format. And so he has a a feeling, you know, it's almost paradoxical. He has the appearance of authenticity, 
which really sets them apart from the Rubios and Cruises who seem so scripted and so um, automaton-like in their presentation, whereas Trump has a kind of freshness about him almost because he verges on incoherence um <laughs> it gives a, a kind of you know authenticity because you know what where i feel that's how most people are you know i always thought it was a mistake back in the george w bush era when liberals would say boy you know he can't get a straight sentence out of his mouth well most people can't they're gonna hold that against somebody you know <laughs> there are other things to question but not that most people don't sound like college professors or or barristers. It's not the way most of us speak. And so it's a mistake to expect that of a leader. A leader has to have other attributes. Trump has some of the attributes of a natural leader, I would say. Don't you think? No, no, he does. He does. He, he has a natural presence. Um, he has um, a natural way of... You know, you're completely right. He has a natural, a natural way of speaking. My thing with him is that he's intellectually lazy. And, and I think you can still have your very homespun kind of folksy uh, delivery and, and language patterns, but still be intellectually curious that he seems to me somebody who's boorish and is happy being boorish and doesn't care for other opinions that uh, might challenge him and he, and he doesn't have a way of actually kind of answering those uh, but but I, I couldn't agree more with what you said about him in terms of the media which kind of gets me on to um, another question which I think Trump might actually herald so he's behind Clinton in the vast majority of polls but he's still somewhat in play in many of the battleground states. He isn't that far behind. And he's done this while spending literally nothing in terms of advertising or with little kind of ground game, no infrastructure on the ground. Is this presidential run heralding the end of the political ad and does it show the rise of social media in campaigning? Well, it, it may. Um, it is just extraordinary how he's done all of that. There was a story I just read today, I think in Politico, the Washington publication. It's online, kind of a Beltway uh, day book, but also publishes a magazine. He has almost no campaign in place in many states. I don't know if you saw this, but what the Politico staff did was just to phone the numbers of his supposed headquarters in state after state and either the phone would ring and no one answered um, or someone would answer and say well we haven't organized uh, our campaign here yet we haven't set up our headquarters but we'll be doing so shortly he has I read somewhere now the number may have since increased this was a couple of weeks ago something like a total of 72 campaign staff nationally when Hillary Clinton has 10 times that many, she has more campaign staff in individual states than Trump has in is his entire operation. And yet, as you say, you, you may be aware of this, uh, Royfield, from the uh, latest polls that have just come out because of the email uh, scandal or controversy, yeah. um, he's, he's almost caught up with her 
in many important states. And so that does raise the question of whether Trump might be onto something. If you get on television all the time, you're a maestro of Twitter, as he is, and your followers are hanging on every word you do, and you're one of the most famous people on earth, do you really need to do all this other stuff? Do you need to spend millions of dollars on ads when you're on television anyway? So you may be right that at least in some instances now, candidates don't need or may not need to do that any longer. And he may have shown the way. And by the way, I absolutely agree with your characterization of his laziness and his incuriosity. That's often a failing of American politicians. You know, Christopher Hitchens, uh, who was a friend of mine, late Christopher Hitchens, couldn't understand why Reagan, who had the opportunity to invite the world to the White House for dinner, instead sat in front of the television with his wife, Nancy, and watched, uh, you know, ate their meals and watched television programs when he could have had the world at his doorstep. There is something uh, to that. And it's often the case with American politicians, not the case with Obama, as we know, Mm. who eats a great deal, who often prefers the company of literary people, one of his favorite writer in America's very ambitious and gifted novelist, Marilyn Robinson, is someone he likes to spend time with. He invites historians to the White House to talk to them. So he has a kind of curiosity and intellectual range and depth that are utterly missing <laughs> from, from Trump. And it is a concern. You don't need an intellectual in the White House, but you do need someone who listens. You know, Hannah Arendt, the great political philosopher, said that really what politics is about is the art of listening. And listening doesn't simply mean that you let other people have their say. It means you actually, through a kind of empathy, inhabit the, who they are. Uh, that's why Obama, for instance, is really good at doing different voices. If you listen to the audio book of Dreams from My Father, where he slips into different accents, that's someone with a really good ear, but it's also a listener. Um, and you would like to think you have that in the presidency. We didn't have it with George W. Bush, and we're certainly not going to have it with Obama. Hillary Clinton, say what you like about her. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. He's a really good listener. Very true, very true. So with the, um, with the kind of the increasing segregation of American media, so with the, I know it's something you mentioned before with the various kind of echo chambers that, that we're having, um, are we going to see somebody of the right who is truly a listener? If you know you, if you have that right wing echo chamber of your Rush Limbaugh's and your Fox News's, then uh, you just follow people that think like you on social media, and then increasingly with all the gerrymandering of uh, American congressional uh, seats. Can the right have a politician that listens who will be the successor to Donald Trump? That's the question, um, because um, we don't know. I mean, the, the thesis that I had in my New York Times essay was really premised on Trump's losing. And does he now give the Republican Party an opportunity to reinvent itself? Well, the biggest problem the party has is demographic. Um, the number, the percentage of people of color, of unmarried women, and millennials, you know, that generation born after 1980, who overlap with people of color, the percentage of that portion of the electorate, which is enormous, that is absolutely turned off by the Republican Party, could be a barrier to they're winning national elections time and time again. And so someone has to break through. Now, Trump is complicated because in some ways he antagonizes those constituencies more than anyone else. What he also does, though, is connect with that other group of voters, what in our crude sort of uh, categorizing our you know, our, the diagramming of the electorate, we call the white working class or the, the blue collar white voters. He has a powerful connection with, and at times the appeal he makes to them, which is really an economic argument, um, could spill over and reach into other groups. You know, there was a very interesting uh, headline that I saw on Twitter from um, a Capitol Hill publication. It said, Trump doing only slightly better than Romney, Mitt Romney, the nominee in 2012, yep. with Hispanic voters. And my thought was, he's actually doing better with all the things he said, you know, calling them names and all the rest. He's actually doing better. Well, the reason, I think, is because the economic argument does resonate a little bit. So um, someone could come along and take the basis of Trump's economic cultural argument, which is not the I don't like people who don't look like me cultural argument, but really, really, am I committing a sin and a crime if 
I use a phrase to describe somebody that is not the most culturally approved at the moment. I don't know how much of the culture of microaggressions and such you have in England, but it's very powerful on college campuses in America. And there's been some recent reporting, some just today in the New York Times, about young people. They're almost always white men, but very young, on university campuses who like Trump because he disinhibits them. They're walking from day to day. They're walking on eggshells. They're insulting women without knowing they are or saying the inappro- making the inappropriate comment or look at it another way. Shouldn't you be allowed to say inappropriate things now and again? I mean, does it really hurt so much if uh, you speak with the occasional vulgarism, what actual crime or harm is being done, and alternatively, what hidden harm accrues from not letting people say what's really on their minds, you know? So I tell people when people when voters say they like Trump because he speaks the truth, they don't mean that he has command of the facts and the evidence because he doesn't. What they mean is that He says the things they would say if only they thought they could. And often, or at least sometimes, they're not really so terrible. We ought to be able to have room for those things to be said. So that's the cultural side. If you take that cultural side and combine it with a genuine economic concern for people who are being left behind by globalization and who are still struggling in the aftermath of the Great Recession. You know, we've had a recovery here. We've had a pretty good recovery. And Obama gets props for it. I think he's been a a really consequential and major president. Um, That's something I should get out there, and I've written about this. I think he is a really important, accomplished, historic figure. I think he's a much better president than people realize. At any rate, all this stuff has happened, but some people are being left behind. And in fact, quite a few because of the complications of the globalized economy. Nobody really knows what to do, how to train people for these new automated jobs, how to compete with other countries that pay workers less, all these things you know very well, and we're part of the debate you all had over Brexit. Well, if somebody can come along and make that economic argument the way Trump does without calling people names and being more interested in policy than he is, demonstrating that curiosity you've mentioned, and also has a light, as a lighter, less abrasive feel for where some of these cultural battles are being fought that really don't have to be as intensely fought as they are. Someone who can bring a sense of humor to it. You could have a fairly powerful, convincing candidate on the right. And one reason I say that is because the young are not interested in the categories old people like me use anyway. They don't remember the history. They're not interested in it. I don't blame them. The old left and right and Democratic and Republican parties mean very little to them. Uh, They don't really want to hear about it. So someone can come along who operates in the margins there uh, who could seem to bring a new authenticity to politics who could be quite successful. I think I, I, I completely agree. And I, I believe that politician will be a social liberal. He will absolutely embrace, uh, you know, gay rights, gay marriage and will embrace uh, minorities, but will be um, 
a Republican, an old-fashioned Republican, in terms of his economic outlook. And I believe that will be, um, and that person will be, will absolutely help uh, reshape American politics going forward. So I've kind of um, given you my perspective on, on my last question. Uh, does Trump's ascendancy herald the rise of the Republicans over the Conservatives in the Republican Party? All I can say is I probably shouldn't. I really hope so. I'm not sure whether it will. Um, for that to happen, you would have to have large segments within the kind of official party structure move toward him. And this, the remaining months of the election and the aftermath will decide whether that happens. That's why in the uh, essay I wrote, I compared Trump to Barry Goldwater, who was the nominee in 1964 and lost very badly, but cr created in his wake the ideological movement. Trump, I think, is in some ways now challenging. And I posited the idea of Trump as a reverse Goldwater, who could do just the thing you've said. Um, and I don't know what the likelihood of that is, partly because Trump himself just seems bored, as you I think we both agree, by a, a lot of the essential work politicians are supposed to do um, to build allies, to um, build bridges, to establish a set of priorities that can be interpreted on the local level, municipally, and also in states, to work legislatively, to create an agenda around a certain set of ideas, all that kind of boring, hard political work that really good politicians do. Um, there's something like you know Hillary Clinton does all the time, or Bernie Sanders in his way. I don't know whether he has the patience for that. Um, and I don't know if there are people around him who do. For me, the question is, and I think you brought this up before, is whether in his wake there might be a new generation of Republicans, because I agree with you, let's call them Republicans and not conservatives. Republicans, politicians on the right who are in the Republican Party, but have socially liberal views, as you say, libertarian, as we would say here, uh, who are attracted to what he has been able to accomplish, attracted to Trump, the demolitionist or wrecking ball, who's destroyed this old, I wrote it somewhere, the most uh, decrepit infrastructure in America is our beltway establishment, you know. And he's t he has really damaged that badly. And that can be his function. Are there really bright ambitious, interesting, younger people watching him do that and then saying, okay, the opening is now there. Here's a set of actual policies that I would pursue. Um, here's a new way of talking about politics. In other words, they become more serious than he is. Now, is that a really optimistic, utopian view? Absolutely it is. But hey, why not? So we can agree Trump is Trump the good. <laughs> well, we'd like to see Trump the good. We'll hope for Trump the good. Perfect, perfect. Sam Tenenhouse, it's been great speaking to you. Sam, if people want to catch up with you, with, with your essay writing or you on social media, how can they do that? Well, um, I'm on Twitter and that is, 
however you say it, you know, with that little um, Sam Tannen house. Uh, so it's my first and last name with whatever that little symbol is, at. Um, and uh, if you go on Google, I write for pretty visible publications. So um, sort of for the New York Times or Prospect in England. I've, I've done some writing for the New Yorker here. Um, all sorts of places. Just go into Google and you'll, and you'll find most of it. Can we get you on the show again soon? Love to do it. It's fun talking to you. You ask great questions. Oh, yeah, you're sucking up to me. You're sucking yeah, up to me. I but yeah, <laughs> Listen, folks, if you want to catch up with me, my name is Royfield Bran. I am on Twitter where I'm at Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. Um, this has been a bit of a, a, a mashup show. It's, uh, it's also going to it's going to be on the Mid-Atlantic feed, but also it's going to be on the Agora Podcast Network Roundtable feed. Um, look out for more special shows like this as we go through the 2016 American election and as I uh, trample around America, this great, wonderful country, trying to understand what it's all about. Thank you again, Sam. Hopefully we'll speak to you soon. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. The Agora Podcast Network. Agora is a marketplace of the mind where intelligent, independent podcasts meet curious and discerning listeners. Our network of shows includes... American Biography. The Bohemian Podcast. How Jamaica Conquered the World. The History of the Papacy. The History of England. The History of Alchemy Podcast. Mid-Atlantic. When Diplomacy Fails. 1001 Conversations. History of Anglo-Saxon England. The Secret Cabinet from Germany. 10 American Presidents. The History of Germany Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Listen to Agora today.